0: Let's come to God's word and pray as we do so. Father, uh, we just bless your name today. I cannot say what a joy it is to be able to come into your presence and to freely worship you with our hearts and our voices. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word once again, you would speak to us. Lord, may I get out of the way, and may you be able to make clear what it is Uh, that you have for us and what you want from us. Uh, Lord, we're so thankful to you that you reveal yourself through your word. Uh, Give us insight this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after our interruption last week to discuss how one should evaluate spiritual experiences like the so-called revival that had been taking place down at Asbury University in Kentucky, Uh, today we want to return to our study series through the pastoral epistles. And so we will be back today in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2. While you're doing so, let me remind you of what we saw in the first two verses of chapter 2, uh, two weeks ago. We said that God's plan for growing Christians and his church cannot happen in isolation. In verse 1, Paul tenderly encourages his son in the faith to continue to grow stronger by God's grace. And in verse 2, he reminded Timothy that his message had remained consistent throughout his life. This refers to the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses Timothy is to understand that God's design is that ministry be multiplied by training teachers and training them to teach others. Second part of verse 2, entrusts to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Remember we saw at least four generations are in view there. Paul teaching Timothy to train reliable people who in turn then will teach and train others, and on and on and on, down to those of us sitting here in this room today. It's God's plan for growing Christians and his church. It's not something that happens in isolation, but rather requires interaction between people as the discipleship process takes place. Our message titled today is Suffering Soldiers, Honest Athletes, and Diligent Farmers. And we will see today that Paul is inspired to describe the fruitful Christian life to Timothy using these three metaphors. So today we'll look at them as Paul compares the struggles in the Christian life to that of soldiers, athletes, and farmers. He compares the struggles of the Christian life to that of of soldiers, athletes, and farmers. So first, Paul again encourages Timothy to remember that suffering will be a part of the Christian life. It's not news that we necessarily like to hear, but it's the fact. Paul encourages Timothy and us to remember that suffering will be a part of the Christian's life. Verse 11, or excuse me, it's not verse 11. Uh, Forgive me, I... But it's... This is what happens when you copy and paste from previous weeks. It's verse 3. Verse 3 Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Join with me in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember, Paul's writing this letter from a Roman prison with his own execution looming over his head, and to most, Association with such a man would have seemed dangerous, disreputable. It's why he had encouraged Timothy in the previous chapter of this letter, do not be ashamed of me, the testimony about our Lord or me, its prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Once again then, he uh, rejoins, reiterates this call to join with me in suffering. And if you remember, we said that this phrase actually translates only one word from the original Greek. The, that word is sunkapatheo, and it's only used these two times in the Scriptures. Back in Second Timothy one eight, and here. It's a compound word that consists of three parts, literally meaning with others to suffer or endure evils, that is, hardships, troubles, or, inf- or afflictions. It speaks of being a partaker in mutual suffering. So the net translation renders it, accept your share of suffering. And the with me part is actually implied, but Paul could have just as easily been thinking of all who've suffered for the sake of the gospel. That's why the original version of the NIV renders this with us, join with us. He adds that Timothy is to do so like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Soldier is from the Greek stratiodace, and it refers simply to a common foot soldier, a warrior. In the army. And then metaphorically, uh, the word came to be used by Christians in relationship to a champion for the cause of Christ. And the call is for all who are part of the Lord's army to accept whatever suffering and hardship the Lord allows us to face. Yesterday morning, I, I took a quick look at the news before I started my day. While I was drinking coffee and I was, I was saddened but not surprised to see a headline just viciously slurring one of Hollywood's few openly Christian actors for daring to suggest that homosexuality is not a desirable lifestyle. The headline read, C-List Homophobe Candace Cameron Beret hopes new gay-denying film gets viewers to, quote, turn to Jesus. C-List homophobe that's the headline see those in the media who, who run it control the message could have easily just as been compassionate christian cries out for people to be saved if you're living your life for christ and you're striving to publicly uphold biblical truth and values, you will undoubtedly suffer loss of respect, friendships, and perhaps even employment opportunities. As we said when we discussed the first incidents of Paul's call to suffer with him, such hardships are minor in comparison with eternity and the eternal rewards that God has promised to us. Even the good purposes in this life that we talked about in that message that God has for earthly suffering. That's why Paul was able to write to the Corinthians about his own sufferings. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the country, in danger at sea and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. So if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness." The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Ariatus had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. James is inspired to remind readers of his scriptures, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. John Kitchen suggests that suffering well is a ministry in itself. I thought that was kind of a profound thought. Suffering well is a ministry in itself. John MacArthur, writing in his commentary on 2 Timothy back in 1995, warned, It is difficult for Christians in most of the Western world to understand what serious spiritual warfare and suffering for Christ means. The secular environment in our society is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity and to religion in general, but most are not faced with job loss, imprisonment, or execution because of our faith. With few exceptions, being a Christian will not keep a student out of a college or a worker from getting a job, but the more faithful a Christian becomes and the more the Lord blesses his work, the more Satan will put roadblocks, hardships, and rejection in the way. The more evident the spiritual warfare will become and the more frequent and obvious the sufferings will become. Sadly, in the intervening quarter century, the perceived value of Christianity has plummeted, and the persecutions over Christian beliefs that he described as uncommon are becoming exponentially more common. We looked at Paul's list of his own sufferings just a moment ago, but earlier in that same letter, he describes how he actually looked at things Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles, he says. After that list that he gives later on, he considers those light and momentary troubles because they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. So after inviting Timothy once again to join with him in suffering for the sake of Christ and his cause, Paul's now inspired to use three metaphors to describe the Christian life and the different sorts of suffering that each of them endure. First, he says, we need the disciplined focus of a member of the military. We need the disciplined focus of a member of the military. Verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs, but rather he tries to please his commanding officer. Now, soldier this time is actually a different word from the one in verse 3. It's stratumahi. This time the single word needs to be translated as serving as a soldier or someone who is in military service. The King James even renders it someone who warreth. So we see from those different translations that the focus in the original language is not so much the person, but rather the job functions of a soldier. The lexicon explains this word means to make a military expedition, to lead soldiers into war or to a battle, to do military duty or be on active service, and to fight, wage war or battle. The idea really here is that a soldier is a soldier and he has to be doing the business of soldiering every single day, all day. Reminds Timothy that a soldier does not involve himself in civilian affairs. And involved really is not quite a strong enough word to fully translate the original idea. Several other English versions more accurately render it as gets entangled in civilian affairs. the The word literally meant to be braided together. It was used of a sheep or a rabbit getting its fur caught and trapped in a briar or a bramble patch. Civilian affairs is translated in other versions as matters of everyday life or or something similar. The idea is really buying and selling and banking and involving oneself in the pursuit of wealth and power. Paul says that for a soldier... Such pursuits are absolutely inappropriate. Military men and women need to be focused on the mission that has been given to them by their commanding officer. And Paul often used military metaphors to describe the responsibilities of Christian life. We saw back in First Timothy, verse 1 and 18, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. Later on in chapter 6, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The Corinthians, he puts it this way, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, for the sake of time, we won't go into Ephesians 6 today, but certainly Paul's discussions there of the full armor of God would be another excellent example of the usage of military metaphors to help explain the proper Christian life. Bible Knowledge Commentary accurately points out that a Roman soldier's single-minded purpose, rigorous discipline, and unquestioning obedience to his commanding officer make, to make the figure of a soldier an apt one for a servant of the gospel. The good soldier does not get entangled with civilian pursuits, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Now, if I remember correctly from the uh, holidays, most of us here in the room didn't serve in the military, but those who did, and, and even those who have watched some of the better war movies, know that, Keeping the CO happy is job one for a soldier. Is this not correct, Brian? (laughs) (laughs) Kitchen correctly states God's pleasure should be our first and highest calling because he is our commanding officer. God, MacArthur also gives us an important warning. The strong desire to please other people is an integral characteristic of fallen mankind. And because of the continued influence of the old self, the old man, even Christians are tempted to be people pleasers. And many Christians succumb to that temptation and become more concerned about pleasing their fellow workers, their neighbors, their friends than about pleasing the Lord. He writes, for the same reason, many pastors fall into the trap of wanting to please their congregations or their communities more than the Lord. And that desire inevitably leads to moral and spiritual decline because pleasing the world, including worldly Christians, demands compromise of God's truth, God's standards, and personal holiness. It demands forsaking Christ as our first love. We're to join with Paul in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus and not get entangled in civilian affairs. Rather, we always try to please our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus. Our mission here, given to us as we derived it from the scriptures, is loving God and loving people as we grow, serve, and share the good news of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. In order to do so, we also need the dedication of an Olympic competitor. We need the dedication of an Olympic competitor. Verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Competes As an athlete, once again, translates another single Greek word, athleo. It means to engage in a contest, to contend in the public games for the purpose of winning a prize. And then by extension, because of the discipline, training, and exercise to which these competitive athletes must commit themselves, athleo also came to mean enduring and suffering the rigors necessary to be successful in their sport. Now, obviously, our English word athlete is a direct transliteration from the Greek athleo. It's It's not a translation. So when we use the word athlete, even in the English, the idea is not only a, a skilled physical specimen of a person... But associated with that, we also have the, the thought of the many, many hours of exercise and training and practice and even competitions that are necessary in order for someone to actually be considered an athlete. And Paul adds, an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. Once again, metaphor of Christian life as an athletic competition was common in Paul's writings. For instance, 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The author of the letter to the Hebrews also uses a similar metaphor, writing, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Athletic competition requires discipline. It requires self-control, endurance, and, and a measure of toughness. John MacArthur explains what someone in Paul's day would have understood about an athleo when reading his words. In the Greek games, which continued for centuries under Roman rule and were still being held in Paul's time, every participant had to meet three qualifications of birth, of training, and of the competitions. First, he had to be a true-born Greek. Second, he had to prepare for at least ten months for the games and swear on oath that he had done so before a statue of Zeus. Third, he had to compete within the specific rules for any given event. To fail in any of those requirements meant automatic disqualification and shame. Comparable rules, he writes, apply for Christians. We must truly be born again, we must be faithful in study and obedience to God's word, in denial and in prayer, and we must live according to Christ's divine standards of discipleship. The very fact that we are Christians means we've met the first qualification, but the other two are actually far from automatic. They involve Constant dedication and consistent effort. And together they constitute spiritual discipline. comes from the same root word as disciple. They're the foundations of spiritual maturity. The disciplined Christian has control of his or her affections, emotions, priorities, and objectives. And even though we're living in the church age and living under grace, not under the Old Testament law, that doesn't mean that we are free to ignore the instructions, God's rules given to us in the Scriptures. After all, didn't the Lord say to us, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? The victor's crown that Paul refers to here is, uh, in Greek, the stephanos. It's the wreath or the garland that was given as a prize to victors in the public games. And then metaphorically it came to be understood as the eternal blessedness that we will be given as a prize for the genuine servants of God and Christ. That is, this crown or wreath which is the reward for righteousness. Paul uses this same term to describe the crown or wreath of glory and honor that belongs to the Lord Jesus For his victory in providing redemption for mankind, as it says in um, Hebrews chapter 2. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a while, now crowned Stephanos with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. What a marvelous thing. Peter also wrote of this crown to encourage the elders among the readers of his first epistle. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, And as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And then, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown, Stephanos, the crown of glory that will never fade away. In that verse, and the verse we saw from Corinthians by Paul, there's a reminder from the games that when the athletic competition comes to an end and the victor is won, this this crown, this wreath, laurels, uh, made out of laurel is typically given to them. But very quickly it would begin to dry up and wither away. And the point here is that the crowns given to us as rewards by the Lord will never decay. They will last forever. Wearsby writes of Paul's thought process here, from the human point of view, Paul seemed a loser. There was nobody in the grandstand anymore cheering for him. All had deserted him, he wrote in the last chapter. He was in prison, suffering as though he was an evildoer, and yet Paul was a winner He had kept the rules laid down in the Word of God, and one day he knew that he would receive a reward from his Lord Jesus. We'll see him write that actually in chapter 4 when we get there. The crown of righteousness. Paul was saying to Timothy, the important thing is for you to obey the Word of God no matter what people say. You're not running the race to please people or to get fame. You're running to please the Lord Jesus. One of the fascinating things that we find in Scripture as we get to the last book of the Bible, the Apostle John was given a vision of worship in heaven. And this is what he saw. Day and night, the four living creatures never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before him. And they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. It's remarkable when we get to heaven, we'll see fully how high, and how holy, and how noble, and how wonderful, and how much our Lord has done for us, and as a result, We'll take those crowns right back off and lay them at His feet in worship and thankfulness for His goodness and His greatness and His glory. He's worthy. If we have the dedication of an Olympic athlete, we too will have that victor's crown and will one day have the honor of laying it before the Lord's feet thankful that He allowed us to arrive, to be with Him in our eternal home. Third, we also need the diligence of a devoted farmer. We need the diligence of a devoted farmer. Verse 6, The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive his share of the crop. Now, Because of the form and the structure of the original Greek, Bible scholars tell us that the emphasis in this sentence is on the hard-working nature of the farmer and only secondarily on the receiving of his share of the crop. King Solomon warned in the book of Proverbs of the importance of diligence for a hard work uh, for a farmer. He wrote, I went past the field of a sluggard, past the vineyard of someone who had no sense Thorns had come up everywhere. The ground was covered with weeds and the stone wall was in ruins. I applied my heart to what I observed and learned a lesson from what I saw. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a thief, scarcity like an armed man. And because the people in in Paul's day lived in an agrarian society, they lived so much closer to the land that they were really more fully understanding of the hardships that are endured by farmers. This metaphor, too, is very common in Scripture. Farmers had to be hardworking in order to have any hope of a decent crop. And they they still have to be hardworking, although they have some machines to help them now back then the vast majority of it was was done by hand, and at least by the uh, energy of oxes, and they still had to guide those around and, and guide the plow as they went. In addition, farmers have to be patient, do they not? One does not plant one day and reap the next. There's much waiting for the right time, the appropriate time for the harvest to come, and there's plenty of protective labor in between. That's why James wrote, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. One of the Lord Jesus' more famous parables used the metaphor of sowing and reaping. He told them many things in parables, saying a farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, but because the soil was shallow, and when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him, Well, what's the meaning of this parable? He explained, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they only last a short time, and when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it, and this is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So this parable speaks not only of the importance of Seeing to it that our hearts are soft and prepared to receive and respond to God's Word, it's also instructive to those who would sow the seed of God's Word in others. Two lessons can be drawn. Don't be surprised when some don't respond and don't bear fruit. And second, don't try to prediscern where to sow your seed because the sower can't really know the state of the ground in which they're planting. Paul also used an agricultural metaphor in writing to the Corinthians about the various tasks that are necessary on a productive farm or in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. After all, what is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe is the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God is the one who makes it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field. MacArthur writes that the industrious farmer starts his hard and demanding work early, and he finishes late. He endures the cold, the heat, the rain, and the drought. He plows the soil whether it is hard or loose. He does not wait for his own convenience because the seasons do not wait for him. When the time comes to plant, he must plant. When the weeds appear, he must remove them. When the crop is mature, he must harvest it. For what drives a man to such hard labor is the reward of the harvest. So the final part of the verse reminds Timothy and the church members that a pastor is supposed to be supported for his hard work among them. He wrote essentially the same thing to the Corinthians. Who tends the flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. And so if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Now Paul did not actually take advantage of that right he chose not to so that uh, no one could accuse him of unjustly and unrighteously profiting from preaching the gospel but he didn't expect other pastors to do the same quite the opposite in fact as we saw in first timothy 5 he wrote there the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor especially those whose work is preaching and teaching And as you recall, we said that this verse means pastors should receive both respect and remuneration. (coughs) That is financial support. And what... (coughs) Excuse me. What that financial support actually buys is time. Time for a pastor to study the Word of God and, and to... Prepare nutritious meals for the congregation from God's word. Also means time being spent in administration and planning and ministering. And there are pastors who, by the grace of God, are able to be successful working only part-time in ministry while they also work in secular uh, employments to support themselves. But candidly, their churches will never be as healthy and successful as they would be if he were able to devote all his time and effort to the Lord's work. May I say to you all this morning, I am deeply grateful for the way that you all have taken care of, Jan and I have provided for us so that I can devote myself to you and the Lord's work. Kitchen reminds us that our labors for the Lord do not go unnoticed and will not go unrewarded. And that's why Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So Paul makes a final encouragement here in this section, which is that biblical meditation will help us grow in Christ. Verse 7, Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Biblical meditation will help us grow in Christ. One of the dangers of church attendance is to let God's word go in one ear and write out the other we need to actually take time to think about, to consider, to ponder, to to ruminate on what we've heard from God's Word. Might I suggest that illumination often requires prayerful consideration. That's my own. Illumination often requires prayerful consideration. See, biblical meditation is not emptying one's mind as the the Eastern yogis do, but rather it's focused thinking on God and His Word and the lessons that we've been taught. God promises that He will aid our understanding of His Word. Jesus said, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He uses His Word. Paul wrote to Philemon, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we have for the sake of Christ. The Colossians, he assured them of his prayers for God's assistance in understanding and growing in the word. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. And we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Man, that's a profound prayer. Kitchen shares this encouragement that falls in line with our message last week regarding the aids for personal revival. What an exciting interchange takes place over the written word of God when we come with humble teachable and hungry hearts crying out for insight that we might know obey and follow God let us therefore regularly pray as with the psalmist open my eyes that I may behold the wonderful things from your law and if we make it our practice to routinely reflect on what the Lord has told us in his word he's promised to give us the insight and the understanding that we need so that we can cope with all the struggles of the Christian life as do soldiers and athletes and farmers. Let's pray. Lord, what amazing metaphors these are as we think about what these individuals go through And Lord, we recognize that we are in a battle for the souls of men. And And we pray, Lord, that as your people, you would help us to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus, to be honest athletes, and as well to be diligent farmers sowing your word. Lord, we want to glorify you and we want to see the fruit of our labor produce others who would pass these things on to more and more generations, as Paul wrote in the last verses. Help us, Lord, to stand firm and stand up for you, for we ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. So would you stand up as we sing our closing song?